Chapter 6 As human beings, our feelings change from day to day and hour to hour. We're cheerful when health is good, but discouraged when things go wrong. Pleased when a postman brings a parcel, but annoyed with an unexpected bill. We feel much better on holiday than we do at work. Better in a restaurant than a traffic jam. Better after taking a shower than before. Our morale is even influenced by the weather and the seasons of the year. But how does this affect our love for God? Many will freely admit to frustration with the emotional ups and downs of their spiritual experience. There's a great warmth of devotion one day and a strange indifference the next. We love God well enough in church, but can't seem to find him anywhere at home or work. We love him enthusiastically at a conference or camp, but do not feel the same when teaching Sunday school week after week. Others long to recover the feelings of first love that they enjoyed many years ago, but lost somewhere along the way. For all of these, the meaning of love may be unclear. We naturally feel more positive when things go well. The fact is that we are often more loving when things go badly. It's a child's illness that brings out the tenderest care in her mother and father. It's when the pipes burst that a neighbour becomes a really good neighbour. It's when the old lady falls that her children rally round to care for her. For most of us, we hardly know what love is until things go wrong. To think of love as a feeling is a mistake that many people make. When we're most loving, we may not feel much love at all. As Jesus was nailed to the cross, it was pain he probably felt far more than warm affection. And yet it was love for us that led him there. Such love is not pleasant. Love gives until it hurts for the sake of the beloved. In middle age, some of us, fearful of losing our first love, try hard to revive the passion of our youth. To be excitable and passionate is quite normal for the young. But few of us were really more loving in our teens and twenties. With the passing years, we naturally calm down, and if our energy is rather less, our knowledge and discernment may be far more. A kind old gentleman of eighty may do more real good than a fiery zealot of eighteen. We should expect to lose our first passion without losing our first love. There is no doubt that some people think of love for God as an exciting experience to enjoy. By means of fasting or acts of humiliation or by shouting and chanting, they've hoped to be caught up to the third heaven, to see wonders, to fly with angels or to battle against demons. But this is not what the Bible writers mean by love. Love for God is not a private indulgence or a heavenly vocation. It's not a personal ecstasy or a mystical adoration. 
It's not reserved for a privileged few. It's a way of life for all. We are all, without exception, called to love him and to know his love for us as we go about the affairs of daily life. It should be obvious that love is not measured by loudness or body temperature or energy expended or calories consumed, but by the practical help, the comfort and happiness we bring to others. Love seeks nothing for itself, but all for the beloved. That is how we should expect to love our Heavenly Father, and how we might expect Him to love us. Passion and pleasure may come and go with the passing hour. But love embraces all of life. Love is as consistent as the air we breathe. At times we simply need to breathe more deeply in order to do what must be done. Once that is clear, some more complex issues may come to light. Personal things that make it difficult to love the Lord our God or to experience his love. To start with, it may be hard for me to love him simply because I'm not a loving person. I've never learned to love with genuine unselfish love. I've never been concerned for the happiness and well-being of anyone except myself. Naturally, this means I'm incompatible with a God of love. The Bible says, anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Pitiful indeed is a man or woman habitually cold and cynical, or critical and angry, and incapable of real kindness or affection. It's very obvious. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. If conflict has become my way of life, I cannot help being in conflict with him too. If my mind is focused on my own rights and privileges, harsh and unpleasant with neighbours and shopkeepers, cursing other drivers on the road, unforgiving towards my family, how dark and clouded will be my perception of a loving God. And yet, whatever we may be like, God himself is love. That is the character he has. When other people behave badly, he loves with patient, understanding, steadfast love. Such love is strong enough to overwhelm the dark unlove of man and win over people who are critical, unkind and unforgiving. Among the early Christians was one who bitterly condemned himself for the bigoted cruelty of his past life. Paul could never forget how he'd hated the followers of Jesus, broken into their homes, imprisoned and beaten and passed sentence of death on them. He'd been harsh and angry, prejudiced and callous. Then suddenly he encountered the risen Lord. To his astonishment, Jesus spoke kindly to him, accepted him as he was, and then changed him forever. But I received mercy for this reason, said Paul, that in me, as the very worst, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience 
as an example for those who would later believe in him for eternal life. If this obnoxious man could be truly forgiven, there's hope for every one of us. If Jesus will help me, I really can become a new person with a new personality. That's what Paul himself discovered. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, he said. The old has passed away. See, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. That's what his love can do for me and you. With a new life and a new personality, a whole new way of living opens up. You begin to greet people cheerfully. You thank them warmly. You overlook their minor faults. You lend a hand whenever you can. Then comes the marvellous discovery that the more you love others, the more they love you. For indeed, as Jesus said, the measure you give will be the measure you get. In your own experience, love has kindled love. And the more you love people, the happier you are. And the easier it is to love the Lord your God. That is certainly a wonderful surprise. Some people have a completely different problem. They're not cold and unloving. On the contrary, they're enthusiastic lovers. But their love is misdirected. There's no place for the Lord God in their life simply because their love is spent and exhausted on other things. One great concern of the Bible writers was the issue of idolatry, and this may seem quite irrelevant in our modern age. Yet the significance of idolatry lay not in its quaint carvings of wood and stone, but its massive investment of loyalty and devotion in the wrong place. The people offering sacrifices in the idol temples were intelligent, creative and extremely energetic, but their efforts were focused on objects that achieved nothing of lasting value. It was a costly investment with poor returns. They were riding, as it were, at high speed, an exercise bike which took them nowhere. The majority of us already love and love perhaps to excess. We love a football team, or a fine wine, or holidays in the sun, or a view from a window, or a piece of music, or a new car, or even our work. There's a sense of delight, a desire to look again, or to listen a second time, a longing to tell someone about it. We know what love feels like, but our love is misplaced. It exhausts its precious energy on the challenge of the workplace or the pleasures and pastimes of our leisure hours. Our problem now, as in ages past, is simply idolatry. Our love is lavished and wasted on the wrong things. It's curious that not one of us is born with an interest and a love for any of these delightful occupations and activities. Each of them is an acquired taste. 
The more attention I give to a sport or a musical instrument or a piece of work, the more I become engrossed in it. The acquiring of these personal tastes and preferences is often a deliberate choice. A prisoner, to pass the time, will take up wood carving. A girl will interest herself in her boyfriend's sport. A child may be persuaded to start piano lessons. A husband will try to appreciate his wife's artwork. Many things in life we learn to love. By asking the names of garden flowers, we become more inclined to do some gardening. Reading newspaper reports of a local team, we think about going to a home match. Identifying some garden birds, we begin to value and enjoy wildlife. The more we know about these things, the more interesting they become, and the more we find we love them. Many people have never given much thought to the creator and sustainer of the universe simply because they are busy with other things. They've never taken the trouble to inquire and find out, and so have no idea how interesting life becomes when he is at the heart of it. If some of the extravagant energy we devote to our personal idols were offered instead to the Lord our God, what great things we might accomplish in this world, not merely for our own pleasure, but for the benefit of mankind. With a growing interest in him, all sorts of possibilities open up. We'll speak more of this. In our own experience, we know many different kinds of love and draw a distinction between them all. We've thought of parental love, and compassionate love, and also the more mundane love of activities we enjoy. We love the friendship and good company of a youth group or a social club. Then someone special comes along and we fall in love. Our love for the Lord our God is different again and cannot be identified with any of these other familiar loves. Its closest parallel is probably found in families. My mother loves me because I am her son, and I love her because she is my mother. We belong to each other. I did not choose her, and she did not choose me. Our relationship began because one day I was born to her. Its basis is a fact that neither of us can change. As the years went by, she cared for me as a good mother would, and I cared for her as a good son should. So we each gained many more reasons to love and honour and appreciate one another. These two are facts in the history we've shared together. In consequence of all this, her love for me and mine for her has become steady, loyal and committed. Very similar to this is my love for my Heavenly Father. It exists because of what has happened between us. Its basis is a fact, followed by many shared experiences. He thought of me and made me, loved me before I was aware of it, suffered greatly for me, accepted me when I was weak and helpless, and now lovingly provides for me. I feel secure in his love. 
happy to recall everything he's done for me and eager to please him in return. I could not claim to be worthy of such love, painfully aware of wasted years and times I've let him down. I could never say I'm good enough, I deserve to be loved by God. Yet he set his love on me. The Bible says, See how much the Father has loved us, that we should be called God's children, and so in fact we are. If I'm accepted as a child of the living God, that will be, for me, an astonishing privilege. This is the essential point. It does not depend on what I do for him, but on what he has done for me. I could spend all my life attempting to do good and religious things in order to be acceptable to God, and still never be sure I'd done enough. Doubt, anxiety and frustration would be the sure result. But when Jesus paid the price for me, he cried, It is finished. And so it was, and always will be. He is my Saviour, and with him I am safe. I've been born again and adopted into his family. It seems right and fitting that a new relationship of such permanent importance, like a birth or a marriage, should be sealed with a declaration and a promise. When Jesus died to atone for the guilt and shame of this chaotic world, he forged a new covenant between God and man. A covenant is a binding commitment, and when I put my faith in him, I enter into that covenant. This is the greatest privilege ever offered to a human being. It's not given to everyone. Indeed, many are unaware of it, and some refuse it. As a turning point in my life, it will be natural for me to mark it in some way and share it with the people who are closest to me. In his final instructions to his followers, Jesus asked them to baptise every new believer in water. Baptism would symbolise two things which he'd done for them. Firstly, he had washed them cleaner than they could ever wash themselves, from the guilt and shame of all they had done wrong. He saved us, they confessed, not because of good or religious things we have done, but by his own mercy, through the washing of rebirth and renewal through the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Yahweh, the Spirit of Jesus, who comes to renew us from within. As soon as we put our trust in him, he starts that work of renewal. And secondly, he had raised them from a condition of death to spiritual life forever. We were buried with Christ in baptism, they declared, and so shared in his death. Then just as he was raised from death by the glory of the Father, we too will live a completely new life. When I'm sure of this for myself, I'll be glad to make it known. I may ask to be baptised in a lake or river, or in a house or church building. Baptism does not make me a member of anything. 
It does not change me in any way. It is simply my personal declaration of commitment and belief. There's no obligation to invite friends, neighbours or relations to watch. But if they are willing to come, they will more easily understand what has happened to me. They may have questions. They may take a liking to my Christian friends. They may even decide to throw in their lot with us. Then they may ask us, what's it really like to be loved by the eternal God?